Welcome to Politically Speaking, Scotland's flagship political podcast brought to you from the editorial team of the award-winning Hollywood magazine. Whether you're more interested in what politicians do to relax than what they actually do in the Parliament, this is the podcast where you'll get the full skinny on politics, policy and pure nonsense. Join me, Mandy Rhodes, editor of Hollywood, along with Liam Kirkcaldy, one of my award-winning writers, along with the odd politician as we chew the political fat and spit it out onto the page of the forthcoming issue of Hollywood magazine. All the um, the different tiers of lockdown, I guess, that we're getting. So it's quite hard just following through what what the local rules might be. I don't want to take credit for Jacinda Ardern's victory, obviously, but I think we all managed. I did play a part. Odd inconsistencies or forgetting dates um, that, that Nicola Sturgeon's almost raising the doubts about her herself. This is not particularly radical government. It talks a good game on redistribution and so on and so forth, but actually it's kind of, it reminds me, frankly, of old-style conservative governments. Okay, so first up we have Good Week, Bad Week. That's a regular part of the show where we talk about the changing fortunes of political players in Scotland and beyond. Mandy, I have, for the first time in ages, I've got a genuinely good week. Like, it's a really nice one. Yeah. Normally my good weeks are pretty much just someone else's bad weeks inverted to find out who was actually getting some sort of benefit from someone else having a bad week. But this is actually a genuinely nice one. Um, And it is SNP MP Amy Callaghan, who was discharged discharged from hospital after suffering a brain hemorrhage back in June. She posted a picture to Twitter of herself holding a crutch aloft triumphantly, saying that, um, well, thanking her medical team, and that she will never be able to repay them. She said that I was wheeled in here and now I'm walking out. It's just getting started. I thought it was lovely as well. I think it, it, and our, our partner also posted a tweet about it, just saying we're going home. And I thought that yeah. was lovely, heartwarming, really good story. Um, I think she's still got a way to go on recovery, but my mm-hmm. goodness, um, people have been supporting her and wishing her well. Mm. Yeah, so yes, I, I agree. Lovely story. She had two different um, pieces of life-saving surgery, apparently. Yeah, now has quite an intensive rehabilitation to come up. Um, yeah, and it has been a while, I suppose, since since June. But yeah, it looks really, really positive. It's one of those things as well, isn't it, during this um, lockdown that time seems to have taken on just a different dimension in a way. Mm. When you say that she's been in hospital since June, gosh, it doesn't seem like that. No, no, so. I know, but it's such a long time. Anyway, mm-hmm. we wish her lots and lots of well and good wishes. Yeah, and a, um, another good week, I would say. Um, mm-hmm. Good week we for Jacinda Ardern, um, yes, okay. who has won a majority in the New Zealand elections for Labour, um, and everybody seems very happy about that. Everybody seems to be <laughs> claiming <laughs> to be her best friend, claiming that she must be like the SNP, claiming that she must be like Labour. Yeah, very popular. Yeah, no, she is. She's, there's, there, everyone's desperate to, to make out that they really put her where she is. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you know, I was thinking about this the other day because I can remember Margaret Curran, um, who was a Labour MSP, who then became a Labour MP. And I think it was Ed Miliband that asked her to go out to New Zealand to basically look at coalition building. Mm. So um, in the days when it might have looked as if Ed Miliband might have been in the market for building a coalition in number 10. Mm. Um, And then if you'll remember, there was the Christchurch mosque shooting. Mm -hmm. There was the volcano that erupted on White Island. And I think 
we, what we saw then was a, a woman that was brought to the attention of the world, if you like, for the way that she was dealing with these crises. Yeah, and, she, can, she yeah. can deal with a crisis. That's what I basically took from all, all of these things. Yeah, almost a dress rehearsal for what she's had to do around COVID. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I suppose the only issue, I'm not trying to rain on her parade at all, um, but you know, New Zealand has done very, very well in this pandemic, but basically because it shut its borders. Mm. Um, and there are lots of things that um, Jacinda's going to have to deal with as we come through this, um, not least the criticism that she's had in the past for the way that the nation has dealt with the Maori indigenous families. Um, so these are all scandals, I think, probably waiting still to be dealt with. Mm. But well done, Jacinda. <laughs> well, she seems quite likeable, doesn't she? Yeah, and I think, you know, it comes back to that whole issue of women leaders during a crisis. And, and Nicola Sturgeon has also had the same kind of praise heaped on her, that they're mm-hmm. good at communication, that they're good at empathy, good at um, that kind of common touch, if you like. Yeah. And Nicola Sturgeon actually borrowed some of her um, social media tricks, didn't she? With, the, you know, the summing up yeah. the government's achievements in record time sort of challenge. It's like being able to read out a list in in a defined amount of seconds. Well, no, in fairness, they read it out really fast. It's a skill. Like, really it fast. is a skill. I could, there's no way I could have read out a list that fast. And I'm, I'm, I, don't wanna, I don't want to take credit for Jacinda Ardern's victory, obviously. But there you go again. I did, I did play a part. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> did you like reading out in class? I, no, I didn't. No, I, well, as, as we've proven with this podcast, I have quite a murky voice. <laughs> Sometimes just pretending to be other people. Yeah. No, I wasn't. I never. I've never been keen on that actually. Um, So the idea of people listening to me reading things has always bothered me. That's why I stayed away from broadcast. I'll tell you. Here's five seconds. Give me a list of your achievements, Liam Kirkcaldy. Um, oh, you just fall at the first first hurdle. I mean, yeah, I haven't really achieved a lot today, to be honest. I mean, I got just a darn elected. Is that not That's enough? True. I suppose. Okay. Should we talk about bad weeks then? Yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, it's been well, a, a bad week probably for some of the big BBC Scotland names. Yeah, that's um, true. People that are taking redundancy packages, Gordon Brewer, um, Ken MacDonald, other Isabel Fraser. It feels um, like there's so, been quite a high turnover of um, of high profile BBC names recently. And maybe that's at UK level as much as Scotland. I mean, but. I have to say the only thing that does occur to me is that these people are also nearing retirement age. Mm. Um, but still, I mean, you know, they're they're big names, household names, and um, I think there is a fear that too much talent is going and you know what kind of legacy will there be it'll be weird going into the next election without brian taylor yeah it will although when he leaves actually i mean i guess that takes us into the it'll be weird going into the election with lots of big names within the parliament that are also going Mm. yeah Um, that's true and potentially that takes me, I guess, into the other bad week because um, we put the magazine to bed and the magazine was published today. Mm-hmm. And I've written a column, basically, I suppose, which seems a little bit at odds with the opinion polls that have come out, which have Nicola Sturgeon sitting at an eye-watering 72% approval rating. Mm. But, but I feel that she is sitting at quite a bad time personally at the moment yeah so it's a funny one isn't it because you could easily i could easily have opened this podcast with it's a great week for the smp because Absolutely, support yeah. for independence is skyrocketing people like nicola sturgeon in general a lot of people didn't know who the other leaders were yeah. um, 
but no, you're right. It's, it's a sort of it's a it's a sort of paradox, isn't it? It is really, and I suppose that um, my it, it comes back to the parliamentary inquiry into the Scottish government's handling of harassment claims against um, Alex Salmond, basically, and I suppose. We've been talking about this almost every podcast for the last few weeks, but it's almost in the areas that you didn't expect there to be questions raised. And I suppose this inquiry, lots of people believe that this inquiry would be about Alex Salmond, which it Mm. isn't. It's about the Scottish government's handling of its complaints process, which, if you remember, led to a judicial review, a court case, which... um, they, in the end, had to abandon because they were going to lose and they paid out £500,000 in legal fees to Alex Salmond and heaven knows how much else it's cost us in time, etc, etc. So this parliamentary inquiry is focused absolutely on the government's handling. That's Nicola Sturgeon's government. Um, and she was on a sun, she was on Sophie Ridge show on Sunday, a couple of Sundays ago, and there was quite a lot of persistent um, questioning about things she had done, things she had said, dates of meetings, etc. And you could tell that she was getting quite flustered for Nicola Sturgeon and getting quite annoyed. Um, But she then basically said to Sophie Ridge that it should be remembered that this was about a man. And in my view, she kind of brought out a tired old trope was this is old age here this is a man accused of misconduct against women and often it's a woman who ends up answering for them Mm. and frankly that missed the point for me because this inquiry is about it's her responsibility she has questions to ask it's actually not about Alex Salmon's conduct so I I felt she could have done a better job there and I suppose in a wider sense, I'm trying to make a point about equality, mm. um, that women having got to a high place um, because of their own abilities and their own experience and their own hard graft, really it's not good enough to then turn around and blame men for something as a diversion, if you like, because you don't like the way you're being questioned. So I didn't mm. think it was her finest moment. No. Um, and, you know, the, the, the inquiry is still going on. You don't know why else is going to come out of this. So they really could have huge consequences for her politically. I don't think anyone went into this thinking that this could, you know, jeopardise Nicola Sturgeon's job. No. And actually, it's it's interesting because it's it's almost in these quite odd inconsistencies or forgetting dates um, that, that Nicola Sturgeon's almost raising the doubts about her herself. Um, and, you know... I'm still trying to work out why, I suppose. Mm. Um, I mean, I think what led to the the interview that was a bit fiery that I've described earlier was um, Nicola Sturgeon had had said that she she'd given a timeline of dates that she'd met people to discuss what happened with um, Alex Salmond, including meeting with Alex Salmond, and originally she'd said a different date to the date that it turned out to be. And it's just caused confusion, if you like, and opened up just a little chink of doubt, I think, for people. Hmm. So, yeah, it'll be interesting as we as we move along on it. Well, yeah, and no, Alex Salmond still has to give evidence as well. You yeah, I was about to say, not least with Alex Salmond. Yeah. yeah. And actually just talking about um, politics and the colour of people that are involved, got a really interesting interview in this issue of the magazine with Diane Abbott, um, mm. which is a really fascinating insight. Rebecca's done it. Um, and just talking about the level of abuse that she got in politics um, as the first black 
women to be elected. Just absolutely horrendous. Um, mm. And, you know, that's obviously increased with social media. But I think you've talked about a survey previously, have you not, that um, just shows her receiving more abuse than anybody. Yeah, the, the the headline from the survey was, you know, the amount of abuse that different MPs got, but actually they, only, they could only understand it in any meaningful sense by excluding the amount of abuse that Diane Abbott got because it was so disproportionate. She she received more abuse than basically all the other MPs put together, I think. Yeah, I think um, Joanna Cherry was high up there, but as you say, you almost have to exclude Diane Abbott's abuse to then look at everybody else's. Um, yeah, I think she received almost half of all abusive tweets sent to female MPs in the run-up to a general election. Yeah. That had been just before 2017. I think that was Amnesty International that did that research. Yeah. And that just tells you a lot. I mean, you, you can't understand the survey unless you take Diana a bit out of it because that she's, she just accounts for so much of it. Incredible. One of the things she says um, in the interview is that when she, she she did actually really consider just standing down. She just didn't want to be around it anymore. And mm. another colleague had said to her, you've got to think about what got us here in the first place. And I suppose mm. that resonated with me. I was thinking about you need to see the black faces in Parliament. I mean, that's that for Diane Abbott, walking away from it would have been the wrong thing. Well, it's an enormous amount of pressure to put on someone, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, that she's responsible for that. But one of the things, I'm not saying this is in any way the same, but one of the things that we're trying to do at Holyrood is be involved in a Pass the Mic project, which um, mm. basically was bringing together women of colour who have expertise in various areas and try and get them a higher profile within the media because we have a role to play in that. So we have four yeah. new columnists starting um, with us from the next issue of the magazine and they'll be writing columns over the next eight months. Um, what I'm very keen, I had a meeting with all four, Viana, Kaleda, Lorna and Shibana on Friday and I'm very keen that they don't just write about being women of colour. It should almost become incidental to the fact that they have good views to, to write about anything. Hmm. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that, and I, well, I think yeah. they are too. Yeah, we introduced that in this this magazine, um, and it, yeah, it came from from Talat Yakub basically being called for a series of really inappropriate media appearances. You know, where she thought, actually, I know of other women of color who would be better placed to do this, but she just they weren't getting calls from producers, from you know, from commissioning editors, people like that. They were they have a very small list of contributors, and it meant that she created this database. That was her response. This this database of women of colour with different expertise in different areas and then that's grown into this and as you say we've, we've got the columns now coming up. Wasn't Talit asked to go on TV at some one point to talk about being a refugee and she wasn't a refugee? She was and, yeah she, well, she got a, she got a call from a radio producer asking yeah to, to come on and talk about the migrant yes, experience yeah but she's not a migrant yeah. um she's I mean which is yeah a, a pretty outrageous request and then what she was saying really was that even when she was going back to producers and saying listen this isn't really one for me but here's three or four other people that you should consider approaching they just weren't doing it because i guess i mean the, you know the excuse that people will make is that they're under huge amounts of pressure for time that they've got to find someone who's not only an expert but who can also do the sort of tv bit or the radio bit you know present themselves correctly mm -hmm. Um, but they they just weren't following up on it. So there was she felt that she'd done as much as she possibly could by you know responding with here's a contact for you, which as a journalist you'd usually really appreciate. But it wasn't even working. Even that much didn't work. Mm -hmm. So she drew up this massive list, yeah, which grew and grew and grew of different women who could come and do these sort of things. And then 
with the with the new columnists, she uh, she got in touch with all, all these women and said, "Listen, who'd be interested in actually changing the face of the media?" And that's really that's the way that they've done that. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking forward to the first column, which will be in two weeks' time. Um, and that, what, the interesting thing about chatting through these things with the four women that uh, are contributing to the magazine was it's about confidence. Um, so we're all going to help each other, and um, they'll also become part of our editorial meetings, hopefully going forward. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, the other thing, obviously, in the magazine is just uh, a lot of chat about um, where the SNP sit right now with the um, it, polls having, you know, a majority again for independence, uh, mm-hmm. looking as if the SNP will get a majority in May. So I've done an interview with Professor James Mitchell from Edinburgh University, just talking about the state of our politics right now. And is there anything which could dis- derail um, the SNP? Um, so we're going to listen to that now. So, James, I suppose a really good place to start is, because uh, I'll obviously want to start with myself. Um, we've just put the magazine out, published today, where I'm basically writing a column that's very critical of Nicola Sturgeon. And yet the backdrop to wherever we sit at the moment is that her um, approval ratings sit at just an eye-wateringly 72%. We've got independence sitting at 58%. Clearly, the SNP are looking towards another majority at the election in May. Could anything go wrong? I think much could go wrong. I think there's still a long way to go to the elections. And obviously, one of the key issues that will have to be confronted um, by the Nicola Sturgeon are some of the issues within her party. I mean, there's real unease and happiness inside the SNP. Now, that's not something I think the public are, are aware of. It's not something that resonates at all uh, with uh, with most people. But there is absolutely no doubt that the SNP today is a much less happy party than it's been in many years, if not decades, frankly. And I think that could undermine it. There's also COVID could could really undermine her. She's she's clearly been a major beneficiary in terms of seen as competent, highly competent, particularly as compared with Boris Johnson. But it's possible that that could turn against her if the public turned to think, well, what are we doing here? What is the government doing? Um, is it competent? Yeah. Well, let's get, we'll we'll look at all those things, um, and I think we'll probably also reference what's happening in New Zealand then as well. But first of all, why is the party? Do you think internally unhappy? What's going on? I think there are a number of things that are going on. I think first and foremost, there's a sense of frustration that the SNP is doing so well that support for independence is climbing, but we're still unclear as to how this independence is going to be delivered and whether there's going to be a referendum, when that's going to be. So I think there's a a frustration that's been building up for quite some time, a sense that the leadership of the party is playing it very safe, that it's not willing to take risks. I think there's an impatience there. So that's one factor. Another factor is that many people are very unhappy with the internal management. And we're really here talking about the party activists, not the membership as a whole. The party activists feel that it's all very centralised, that they're not getting their voice heard, that the headquarters is dysfunctional, whether that's true or not. That's the perception that we're hearing um, from from many activists, many long-term activists, and people who who traditionally are very loyal to to the SNP leadership that we have. And then, of course, there's the, the other factor which plays into all of this, and that is this competition 
for uh, nominations to uh, constituencies and, of course, uh, the list uh, for next year. What we've seen um, recently is really fierce competition and really quite nasty politics on many occasions with these internal selection processes. And we've not seen something like this in the SNP really since 2003. Um, and I think all of these things together are creating, amongst have to stress, activists, mm. not the membership as a whole and not the electorate, not the kind of people who are likely to vote for the SNP, at least not at this stage, a lot of unhappiness, a lot of unease, a lot of sense of frustration. Um, and I have to say, it's not being very well managed by the by the leadership. It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think um, you and I have discussed it before, and it, there's almost it smacks of that kind of new labour esque thing that there is now a potential career for people within the SNP, um, and these selection contests that are happening now could be the career defining moment for lots of younger people, if you like, that are trying to get into the party and into sorry, not into the party, but to be elected. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things the SNP has done is, as it's moved to, into the position it now has as Scotland's largest party, um, is that it's attracted many people who are very career-minded and they, they see a career in politics. And the obvious way, if you want to have a career in Scottish politics, that you look to the SNP. And so I think you've got a lot of that now, which you wouldn't have had in, in the past, even, you know, go back 20-plus years. You certainly didn't have much of that in the SNP because there weren't many career opportunities. So that's certainly adding to to it and you know there's a sense also and it's a combination of the the point i made earlier that um you know the, the frustration the feeling that, that that the party isn't making progress towards that goal it may be winning support for independence but it's not making progress towards achieving independence and that in a sense some of that frustration is kind of taken out on some of the incumbent the current msps in the sense that some of them are not doing a very good job and so on and so forth that they're not progressing the case and and so on so i think it's a a real mixture of things that are going on there but ultimately i think a lot comes down to frustration um that, that progress is being made at one level but ultimately not at the the most important level that is achieving the goal I mean, one of the, I suppose, the paradox of all of this is that for a party of independence that you wanted to go out there, as uh, Salmon did, as his rallying cry, in fact, of um, team vision record, that you become too managerial, you become too comfortable in government to then take it that one step further? Is that the crux yeah. of where people feel? I, I think there's a lot in that. I mean, one of the things that the SNP has been very good at doing in office is communication. It's been great at communicating to the wider electorate that it is very competent and also comes across as being, you know, quite safe. But that safety is something that many of the activists are really uncomfortable with. They think it's too safe. They want, they're, they're impatient. They want to see progress. Um, and, you know, in truth... This is not a particularly radical government. This is a very small C Conservative government, with the exception of a number of areas. Now, the interesting thing is that the, the Scottish government has been pretty radical on things like gender recognition, um, hate crime, and so on and so forth. But these are, frankly, niche issues. Now, I'm not saying they're not important issues. They are important issues, but they are not issues that resonate with the public at large. So where it seems to have ra radical kind of politics, a radical edge, as it were, it isn't with areas in areas that the public at large uh, or indeed the membership and activist core um, can relate to for the most part. Now, of course, there are some activists who are very, very much um, very keen on, on, on all of this. But 
Beyond that, frankly, it's a very, very small C conservative government. It talks a good game on redistribution and so on and so forth, but actually it's kind of it reminds me, frankly, of old style conservative governments that um, you know, pre-Thatcher governments which didn't want to rock the boat and conserved everything and ran away from any really challenging and difficult uh, issues. That's fascinating, which I think for a lot of the younger activists actually might find very disconcerting that they might be part of a party that would be viewed that way. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm not pretending for a moment that my view of the SNP is, is necessarily going to be shared by, by all, certainly not none of these activists. I, I do think, however, we've got to, in Scottish politics, not just the SNP, look beyond the rhetoric. Um, there are many, many challenges in our society and our economies. And, and we're not really addressing them. We we talk the talk, but we don't really deliver to 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 the extent that the talk suggests. Um, and and I think there is also a curious thing in the SNP these days, and this is a kind of a, a relatively novel development where there's an awful lot of trust in the leadership. The, the sense of well, Nicola knows best. We'll leave it to Nicola and her team. Now you know if you go back only a few years, as you and I both well remember, SNP conferences and SNP activists were always expecting to, to be heard and, and to, to contribute more to policy. That's no longer the case. They've been cut out. And that I find really fascinating, the way in which the SNP has gone from this party, which was you know, highly participatory in terms of policymaking, um, very democratic, has gone to become this very top-down, uh, centralised institution that it is today. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Just returning to a couple of the, the, the issues that you mentioned as being more radical in terms of the agenda as well. So on the GRA, the hate crime, things like the name person, all that were seen, I suppose, as well-intentioned and quite cutting edge in some ways in terms of their their policy direction have been the ones that the SNP, the, the government, has been able to properly communicate or properly get through Parliament. Yeah, these are really interesting areas. I mean, these are areas that, that, that the SNP and indeed all the political parties in the past in Scotland ran away from. It's kind of a part of that liberal agenda. And the SNP really has attempted to, to engage with this. I don't think they've done a very good job, frankly. I think they could have consulted more widely. And it's not, I've got no view one way or the other as to whether these policies are good or bad. I just think they've been incredibly poorly articulated. I think they've been very poorly developed. The fact that they've had to kind of make big changes throughout or, or indeed reverse these policies suggests that they didn't do their homework properly on, on these matters. And I wonder whether that is contributing to the conservatism across all sorts of other issues. There's a, there's a fear that if you do anything bold, you'll run up against these, these kind of problems. But these problems, frankly, were made by the SNP <laughs> inability to get to think things through. Yeah, no one forced them to say that they thought that GRA reform was um, an important thing. But it's quite interesting because it, for a party that's led by a woman that is renowned for being on top of detail in some ways, it, these have been quite superficial in terms of what you're promising. And that's what's caused the problems. There's no yeah. nuance. Do you just say GRA reform, but you don't detail what you're looking for? 
But you, you hit on a very important point there when you say a leader who's in top of detail, and there's no doubt at all that she is in top of detail, but no First Minister can ever be in top of detail across the board. There needs to be a, a sharing of responsibility with cabinet ministers and with others and listening to a broader section of, of her party. My strong sense is that what we've seen is not just a centralisation in the SNP headquarters, but within government as well, that, that, that there doesn't seem to be the same degree of consultation, of listening, of engaging. And frankly, without any shadow of a doubt, Nicola Sturgeon is a detailed person, but even someone uh, as on top of detail as she is cannot be expected to be on top of everything. And, and I, I, I suspect that's a major part of the problem, that she's unwilling to kind of bring in and broaden out the tent. Um, and that's always a very dangerous position for any uh, government minister or leader to, to find him or herself in. Maybe she doesn't think it matters. I mean, with a 72% approval rating, why should she bother consulting with anyone? Well, she, she, we all find that this will come back to haunt her. If, if for example, um, you know, a series of, uh, of problems and reverses uh, could eventually, you know, lead the public to say, hold on, what's going on? So, yes, at the moment that may be right, but I think that would be a, a, an unwise move to, to assume that, oh, uh, nothing, I mean, nothing can touch me because I've got these rate ratings. Ratings can go up and they can go down. And, and I think, you know, if there's a, a complacent attitude, that, that could be her undoing. I mean, we'd normally be, go be coming out of the UK party conference season and going into the SNP annual party conference. That's obviously been moved um, because of the pandemic into a virtual event next month. Do you think that might be a blessing, actually, for both um, Nicola Sturgeon and her husband, who is the chief executive of the party? Well, well, it could be. It all depends on, on how that conference is, is run. I mean, I think if, the, if, the, if there's a sense in the, amongst activists that this is an attempt to prevent proper debate, scrutiny and accountability, then I think that, that they'll be in trouble. And we do know that there are a number of challenges um, to some of the key positions, including the National Executive Committee, that will be very interesting to watch. And it will be a, a real um, indicator of the extent to which the, the activists and members are unhappy. So I think that, uh, you know, the, 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 the new style is, uh, due to the pandemic, um, I think she must be careful that she doesn't overuse that and in order to um, kind of control things, she does need to let go, and and, and to, at least to some extent. And, and if she doesn't, I think she's she's going to be in trouble eventually. I mean, when you look at what's happened in New Zealand with a strong woman leader who's put herself, like Nicola has, at the front and centre of the pandemic, don't you think that Nicola might look to that and think, oh well, it's worked well for Jacinda? She might, but she would need to take account of the fact uh, that uh, COVID has been handled, um, you know, far, far very differently, uh, very differently and far, far more successfully in New Zealand. I, you know, I, I found it very interesting the way in which so many people um, were claiming uh, some association with the New Zealand uh, situation with the, you know, you know, the SNP people say, well, as a, a country about five million and the Labour people were saying, well, it was a Labour leader and so on and so forth. The truth of the matter is that... Um, New Zealand doesn't look like Scotland and none of the political parties here look like her and none of the, the political leaders look, look, look like the, the, the New Zealand Prime Minister to me, frankly. Uh, but I can fully understand why they're all wanting to, to try and share in her glory. Um, but there were real differences and notably, notably COVID. Um, Scotland's record on COVID isn't great. We're Again, it comes back to my point earlier. We've got a First Minister who's 
superb when it comes to communication. But actually, look at the raw figures. Look at what's happened. It's not a good news story. What do you think could happen then between here and May, if you like? I mean, what what could really derail the SNP's position? I think there's obviously uh, some of the internal issues. One of the things we've not talked about is the kind of the, the fallout from the salmon case mm-hmm. and what might emerge from that. And, and frankly, the reason I, I vote it is because I don't really know what's going on with that. But that presumably could could disrupt things for them. But ultimately, I think um, the SNP are are looking good. And and partly, I think it's because there is no alternative. Um, The SNP, to me, looks like a political party that needs to have a period in opposition. It needs a refresh. It sounds tired. It's frankly, policy profile is not exciting. Um, However, it looks like the other parties are conspiring to keep the SNP in office. They are so poor. Um, so, you know, the truth of the matter is that if you look around the political parties and the leadership of Scotland, it's, it's not a happy sight at all. Um, so I suspect um, the SNP will be OK, assuming nothing significant major emerges that we can't foresee. But it sounds like you're saying that might not necessarily be a good thing, either for the party or for the country. No, I think I think we could do with that. I mean, I certainly think we could do with a, a healthier and fuller debate on policy and indeed even on the Constitution. I, I think the debate on the Constitution has been stuck in a rut now for some years. It's hyper adversarial. And, you know, there's much more that could and should be said on that. And across, you know, just everyday policy, we we need to kind of start exploring much more critically, self-critically policy on education, on health and so on. So you know, health is one of the areas where I think we, we, we really have neglected health. We, we talk a lot about public health. We talk a lot about prevention and so on and so forth, but we do very little. You know, it's Next year will be the 10th anniversary of the Christie Commission, and you you know that very well. And um, I was a member of that commission. And as I look back over the last decade, uh, frankly, uh, the, the the lack of progress is deeply, deeply dispiriting. Um, and, and that's something we desperately need to start addressing. How do we move forward in terms of local governance? I mean, there's an issue. You know, local authorities have been disempowered and not much sign that Scottish government shows any interest. It continues to centralise, um, despite the fact that this pandemic has shown the the vital role that local authorities are playing and continue to play in delivering our services. Um, we need to empower at local level as well. So I'd like to see the debates generally broadened out. Um, and and I, I have to say that you know elections generally don't do that. Um, we tend to become more narrow and, and we tend to be more adversarial. Lots of heat, but not a lot of light. So I think the next few months are not going to be very happy months for people like me. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, on the devolution point that you make, that um, a country, if you like, like Scotland, gets so much more devolution and yet then holds everything much more centrally. And I was thinking about that listening to Andy Burnham. And um, I can remember interviewing Andy Burnham back in 2013 um, when he was talking about perhaps the northeast and the northwest of England should be much more aligned to Scotland. And we should all be, he was basically saying to me, Scotland should uh, vote no in their referendum to stop them suffering Tory rule forever. And of course, that's what they're still suffering. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big changes that's taken place in English politics has been Brexit and 
the, 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 the red wall, the loss of those Labour seats in the north of England. In a, in a funny kind of way, it really has brought the north of England to the attention of London for the first time in a very long time. And, and key figures like Andy Burnham have really been asserting themselves throughout this whole period with COVID. And we've, we've been seeing it very recently with many of the statements and, and positions. And I think that we actually could be at a turning point when, you know, we could actually start to think, well, maybe there is a, a possibility of regional government or whatever across England in a way that in the past I would have just said it's not going to happen. I just dismissed and And, and I'm not at all sure about that now. The time is, is now, I suspect, and... There are certainly people who are giving a lot of serious thought to that um, in the Labour Party, it should be stressed. Um, but whether it's too late I, 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 is the issue. Um, it isn't inconceivable that, um, you know, a, a very different architecture of the United Kingdom constitution could be imagined and, and, and developed. But as I say, I think the problem is that time is running out because I think an independent referendum is going to come at some stage and if there was to be some third option, as it were, it would need to be spelled out um, with some degree of detail um, and, and that's, that's a challenge. With the prospect of a second independence referendum, I mean, obviously, we've got to get past the obstacle, I suppose, of uh, a Tory prime minister refusing the Section 30. But if there is an independence referendum, who could you see leading the two sides? Well, I would imagine that on the yes side, it would be led by Nicola Sturgeon, assuming she's still the leader of the SNP and First Minister, which I think is a fair fair enough assumption. I can't imagine for one moment that she would not want to lead it or she would even consider allowing anybody else to lead it. I mean, this is a, a, a person who likes to be in charge. So, Although you don't but, think they'll do what they did last time and have where Alec didn't actually lead it, but had Blair Jenkins well, as leader. I think they may well have, as last time, someone who's a kind of figurehead for, yes, Scotland, but behind the scenes, that you know, it was the First Minister that was really in charge. And, and that and would be even, unlikely to be Alex Salmond, I presume. It wouldn't be Alex Salmond, no, but I think it would be, I think it certainly would be Nicola Sturgeon. On the other side, difficult to see. It's very difficult to see. I think if the polls are to be believed, and if uh, next year Labour and the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats have a bad election, then we're likely to see new leaders emerging in each of these parties. And that kind of alters the whole picture. Um, I'm not suggesting that it would be the leader of one of the opposition parties who would lead a campaign against independence, but it would seriously change, uh, I think, the kind of whole, whole, whole makeup of the, the anti-independence campaign. I also, I suspect we're a very different campaign next time on both sides. I think the opponents of, of, of independence will not unite in the way they did around Better Together. I think the Labour Party will not uh, want to be in bed with the Conservatives next time around. The, the big lesson from 2014 for Labour was that joining the Tories was 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 a massive mistake for 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 the Labour Party, um, and and that's going to be very difficult for the Labour Party unless unless of course they've got a third option on the ballot paper that they could rally around. But uh, yeah, I think it was a very different campaign next time round. Um, but I, you know, I, I think so much could happen and change between now and then. It's difficult to to make any firm predictions. It'd also be quite difficult, wouldn't it, having um, Baroness Davidson lead the no side, having an unelected member. 
I think she'll want to play a major part in the referendum, and she will play a major part in the referendum, but I don't think she could lead it. I don't think she would have credibility as a member of the Lords and having, if you like, departed the scene, um, departed the Scottish Parliament. And I have to say, I think uh, Ruth Davidson is is a formidable uh, debater, communicator, much in the same way that Nicola Sturgeon is, but I don't think she's got much else going for frankly and I don't think she would be quite as able I think I think she's run her course as it were um and I think it will probably be a, a, a different type of person. I, I would imagine that if it was a simple binary choice, then the no side would be needing to find someone that was above party or separate from political party to, to lead. And that's always very challenging because you know, one of the things that politicians is they've got experience of politics um, and bringing someone in from outside uh, is always going to be a gamble. And and it does seem that despite the fact that the support for independence has gone up and is in a majority in a number of polls, they haven't actually made any further case for independence. I don't see where the improved economic cases or um, a brighter or more positive vision has been made. Yeah, and I, I think one of two things must be going on here. Either the, the plan is not to have a, a detailed plan, um, not to have, if you like, an equivalent of the 2013 white paper, or else to leave it to the last minute and to produce one before a referendum. And I'm pretty sure it will be one that is, uh, uh, is tighter than the 2013 one. And one of the reasons I think that there would be a, a desire to avoid uh, having a kind of um, 2013 white paper soon um, is, of course, that there are so many divisions which um, uh, are evident in the yes side, um, the currency issue being but one. Um, but, you know, what we've seen over currency and the, the debate, so-called debate within the yes side, I mean, it's pretty nasty stuff that's being said. And that's all within the yes camp on whether there should be sterilisation or a separate Scottish currency. Um, you know, I think I think that, that Michael Sturgeon would want to kind of avoid any of that. So I suspect that so long as she possibly can, she'll avoid um, developing policy in detail. And, and quite clearly at the moment, it's working. Um, mm-hmm. uh, keeping it very broad brush, going for heart uh, overhead uh, seems to be the strategy. It's, it's certainly seeing uh, opinion shift. It's not quite shifting hugely, but it is shifting slowly, but it would appear pretty surely. Just, I mean, obviously, James, you've been around as long as me watching all of this, but it, it remains a conundrum for me that in Nicola Sturgeon, you have somebody that appears um, much more on the surface collegiate um, than perhaps her predecessor, more empathy, perhaps. Um, you would have expected more of a team. And yet that huge strength that we always had within the SNP of that very close um, group of people that knew each other, um, that appears to have gone and we've got all this infighting. So, I, I, you know, it's trying to understand why when you have a figurehead like Nicola Sturgeon, are mm. we now faced with a party that seems to be tearing itself apart internally? Yeah, I, I saw something written by Jim Sellers recently, and I think he he uh, made a point that's valid, and that is that uh, the SNP went from having a collective leadership, which it had for most of its history, really, uh, right through to the early days of, of devolution. And that cha- started to change under Alex Salmon's second period as leader, and it became very much focused on, on the leader. And 
in a sense, that's what Nicola Sturgeon's inherited, and she's taking it to the next level. She's taking it even further than, than Alex Salmon did. And so you've had this kind of, over a long period of time, this kind of significant change in the way the SNP operates, from being that kind of grassroots, deliberative, participatory party into this highly professionalised, centralised focus on the leader. Um, but it's been a process, I think, that's been going on really for quite some time, arguably from about 2004, um, but really taking to extremes uh, under under Nicola uh, Sturgeon. And could you see that then ending the same way, if you like, for as it did for New Labour, where it just eventually implodes? Or are we on a race here that independence could happen before that happens? I, I think one of the reasons why you're getting this kind of pent-up frustration and it's, it spills over publicly occasionally but never really finds proper voice is because there is a perception that there could be an independent referendum just around the corner and so people are kind of behaving themselves, as it were, up to a point, though as I say it does spill over. Um, but I think, you know, the truth of the matter is the support a party gives to the leader is largely dependent on how well that party is doing and the perception that the SNP is doing well and it is doing well in the polls um, is helping Nicola Sturgeon. If the SNP was to falter, then you quickly find her support would diminish, if not disappear. Um, but we're not there yet. We may never get there, but there's no doubt at all that that's a key um, determinant and support for any party leader. It's just how successful they are. And that's what the party members in the SNP want and they expect um, and they'll be quite happy for the most part. I think most members will be quite happy so long as she's delivering for, for them. But of course, that delivery in SNP terms isn't just about winning elections. It's also about winning independence. And that's where that frustration is, is creeping in um, that she's not seen to be making as much progress on that as some would wish. So with just, I suppose, just over six months until the election, um, what would your advice be to the individual leaders? What can they do? What could Douglas Ross do to potentially become First Minister? I, I think Douglas Ross really needs to be clear as to whether he really thinks he's going to be First Minister, and I don't think very many people do. Um, and if he really wants to be, for example, the uh, what they Tories like to call the leader of the opposition, of course there's no such formal term in the Scottish Parliament, but if he wants to retain his position as the leader of the second largest party, then I think he will be... Uh, likely to go on the kind of uh, anti-independence, anti-independence referendum and really hammer that home. It's interesting because the Tories are starting to talk about other policies and once you get into that, it can be dangerous. And, and you know, the truth is that stuff they've produced so far is pretty flimsy on policy. Um, I can see why they might want to push some policies, not because they expect to win, but because they might be populist and so on and so forth. So I can see, I, I, I imagine that's what he would do. I think Richard Leonard needs to, and his party, it's not just Richard Leonard, I think they need to think, well, what is the purpose of the Labour Party in Scotland? How does it relate to the Scottish question? How do they avoid being caught up in another referendum on the same side as the Tories? Do they need, are they able to articulate a distinct position, distinct from the SNP and distinct from the Conservatives, distinct both constitutionally, but also in terms of social justice. I think there is an opportunity there for the Labour Party, but time is running out and there needs to be real leadership on that. 
Um, Liberal Democrats, I think, are going to probably have to just acknowledge that their best hope in these elections would be to hold on to uh, their existing seats. And and I think that's what they're doing. Um, The the public is just still, they're not forgiving of the Liberal Democrats going into bed with the Tories. That's the thing about Scotland that people have to accept. There is obviously a Conservative element in the Scottish elector, capital C, supporting Conservative element. But for the most part, Scots are don't, are actually small C conservatives who dislike capital C conservatives. In other words, we're quite conservative in our politics. We don't like big change. However, we really dislike Tories. And and, and that, I think, is a, a major factor in, in how the parties uh, uh, perform. And that might partly explain why the SNP is doing quite well, of course. Uh, my complaints that they're small C conservative, well, these are my complaints. I want to see big change in terms of policy, but actually the electorate may not want to do so. And so maybe Nicola Sturgeon's on to something here. That small C conservatism of, of Sturgeon is, is, is perhaps quite attractive to many voters. Have you forgotten about the Greens, James? I did, and that was terrible. Because the <laughs> Greens, I think... Actually, the Greens have a very important role in, in this because the Greens could act as, as quite an important bridge in, in our politics, particularly towards progressive politics. And the Greens are, you know, in a funny kind of way, um, they are the party that think about policies, um, whatever you think of them, more seriously than the others. And they do have proper debates internally. Um, and, of course, they, they will potentially be very significant in the next parliament if the SNP doesn't have an overall majority. Um, so, yeah, I can see why they would want to uh, get that message out there. And, of course, their ambition must be to retain their position uh, as, as, as third party. And perhaps, if the Labour Party doesn't get its act together, start challenging Labour for third place. Um, and that would require them to not only draw support from, from Labour, but also the SNP. So the Greens, I think, that, uh, I ought to apologise because... They they, they potentially are quite a significant force. They've got the potential, especially if the other parties uh, don't get their act together to 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 move forward. And of course, there remains constant rumours about um, an Alex Salmon type party. I yeah, I mean if I mean I must say that we've had every election the talk of uh, another new party emerging and doing well, and that generally doesn't happen. Remember, rise at the last. Yeah. Scottish parliamentary elections, you know, risible levels of support. I think the only way in which another independent supporting party could do well would be on the list, and only if it has a very significant person, perhaps Alex Salmond, um, on, on, on the ballot paper. But it's very difficult to break through. Um, you know, we, we, we've certainly seen in the past individuals, people like Margot, MacDonald, obviously, but, you know, Margot was pretty unique. Um, mm. And, and well, I think Alex Salmon might be able to pick up some support, perhaps even if he was to stand um, at top of the list in, in the North East, he might be elected. I don't see um, a party or movement beyond that doing so well. I must remember that if, if such a party was to stand in different parts of Scotland, it conceivably would take votes from the Greens as 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 well as as from the SNP, and the SNP can afford to lose seats on the list if the polls are to be believed, but the Greens certainly can't. So they could split split the pro-independence vote. Of course, it'd be fascinating for people like us to see Alex Salmond lead the opposition against Nicola Sturgeon. And I'm pretty sure that even if if he was elected and he was the only member of that party to be elected, he would be probably the most formidable opposition leader in the parliament. Um, so, yeah, he would be interested. I 
personally don't see it happening, but then, you know, it's not the first time I've been proved wrong in politics. I guess that the main thing is that that's all we're saying, isn't it interesting in Scottish politics? That's not going to end any time soon, is it? No, it's not going to end any time soon. I mean, these are all big issues. And, of course, we've, you know, with COVID, Brexit, we haven't even mentioned Brexit. You know, oh, God, politics, yeah. uh, you know it's, 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 it's very challenging. It's very challenging for all the parties, for government. It's very difficult. Um, and these issues are not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, and I have to say, I think one of the things, as I look forward not look forward, but looking forward. But as I look forward, I think it's going to become, it's going to become even more adversarial, not less, in the next few months. And and there's going to be even more heat than light generated. So for those who like the theatre of politics, you've got much to look forward to. For those of us who prefer to see, who see politics in, in terms of public policy, grey and serious matters, um, it's, it's perhaps less attractive. Oh, well, we'll all get strapped in for that. Yeah, <laughs> Thank you very much, James. That's brilliant. Thank you. Okay, so now it's time for the rant of the week. That's a chance for Mandy to get something off her chest that's been bothering her. Mandy, what do you have this week? Do you think I'm mellowing a bit, Liam? I just I feel I'm I'm, I'm less ranty and more. Oh, what do you think about this, Liam? actually it's not something i would have said i mean it might be worth putting out a wider consultation than just me on the podcast you you think i'm just a ranty old fool maybe maybe you just don't you don't want to fit it all out on air well i I suppose the um actually probably most people are having the same kind of discussions throughout the country but it's about all the um the different tiers of lockdown i guess that we're getting so it's quite hard Mm. just following through what what the local rules might be um Mm. i mean to be perfectly honest i think most of us are probably aware of what we should and shouldn't be doing but it does get more nuanced when you start to think about the times that as we discussed last week cafes pubs bistros Mm -hmm. um have you worked out what a bistro is or a brasserie yet i actually i didn't even to be honest with you, I've never known that. I just wanted to find out. I thought that'd be a good opportunity to pretend I was quizzing you when actually I was just trying to basically find out information. Oh, I see. So it's not a place you have a panini necessarily. That'd be something else. No, no, absolutely not. I, mean, I don't know. <laughs> you don't, don't know. What's a panini? You're asking someone who doesn't know. <laughs> but I suppose the thing that um, has interested me with this this latest stage, if you like, is um, the the appearance of Andy Burnham and how important it is to have a local champion. Um, Mm. And I, I was reflecting on, on this. I was discussing it with somebody when we were talking about the rules, as you do, not ranting, just discussing. And I was Mm -hmm. saying, I interviewed Andy Burnham when he was shadow health secretary. So that was back in 2013. And it was um, obviously in the lead up to the independence referendum in Scotland. And Andy Burnham was was very much a proud northerner at that point. And his main argument to me in terms of independence was that we must convince Scots not to vote yes and abandon the north of England to the Tories. 
Um, of course, we voted no, and um, the North of England <laughs> has voted for the Tories. Yeah, so yeah. quite interesting. But I think what I've liked about um, listening to Andy Burnham is just seeing him as he's been dubbed the King of the North. And he's saying, you know, we won't no, roll over um, just at the sight of a cheque from number 10 and do not make us canaries in a coal mine. You don't want a wolf if you're a canary. Um, no, I'd, I'd, if anything, I'd get a wolf as an assistant for Andy Burnham. Really push. <laughs> the king of the north just think he's been really it's really good to see um a local politician really standing up for their area Hmm. um, and looking for a solution as well you know he's not saying well not a problem Hmm. i thought no i thought he actually did remind me a little bit of the way that the smps managed to maneuver some of these issues in the past you know like the the whole idea of sort of standing strong for scotland or standing up for scotland you know i think that's something that Andy Burnham's probably learned some lessons from, and the idea that he could be a, a voice of confrontation with Boris Johnson isn't going to go down badly with, with his supporters. Absolutely. And I suppose the, the question is whether any of this might make different parts of England a little bit warmer towards the concept of devolution, original devolution, you know, because it's always been something in the past that seemed to make sense. Looking at it from Scotland, I would have assumed people in the north of England would want greater levels of devolution, but I'm not sure that's actually true. And, you know, there was a vote on it in the past. Mm. Well, and also when you look at what is happening in Scotland at the moment, where local areas are getting angry about there being differences in terms of the COVID response. But, mm. yeah, I think um, I think it's fair to say that politicians could be doing something about standing up for their, o- their own local areas and being champions for them. Well, we could bring Jacinda Ardern in. So I guess what you're saying, Liam, is that Jacinda should act. (laughs) So they say a week is a long time in politics, and you've just heard a fraction of that condensed into today's Politically Speaking podcast. I hope we've enlightened and entertained, and the next time you hear someone say they're not interested in politics, remember you know a podcast that can help them with that. If you enjoyed this episode of Politically Speaking from Hollywood Magazine and the chat between Liam and I, remember to subscribe and leave a review and tell your friends to subscribe too. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever you listen to podcasts. Also remember to check out our fortnightly release of Hollywood Magazine available in print or online at hollywood.com. Bye for now.